In this Bath Science Cafe lecture, Piers Bazzoni, an award-winning space historian, talks about Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, and the adventures of the space age. This lecture contains some adult language. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to um, October Science Cafe. Um, as you all know, it's the 50th anniversary since uh, we threw things into space, and I'm very pleased to say that uh, we've got Piers Bosnia here, who's going to talk on... Uh, Bazzoni. Bazzoni. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he's going to talk on 50 years uh, since uh, Sputnik. Um, the idea is that Pierce will talk for about half an hour or so. We'll have a short break and then we'll come back for your questions. So it's really about your questions to Pierce. Yeah. Uh, which he's very much in favour of. So I'll, I'll just, without further ado, after much ado... Uh, leave it to Piers. Okay, thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's nice to see such a, a full room tonight. It's really good fun, this place, and I'm very, very pleased to be here. Now, you can't have escaped hearing about Sputnik over the last few days. The newspapers have mentioned it. It was a symbol on Google. I don't know how many of you used Google on Thursday, but there was a little uh, symbol for Sputnik there. What we're looking at is the machine that launched Sputnik. Well, not quite. This is called a Soyuz rocket, and it's what takes the, uh, the crews up to the International Space Station. It's the, ro the rocket that the Russians still use today. It's not that view that I'm interested in. It's the back view of the rocket. And the back view of this rocket is indistinguishable in almost every regard from the rocket that began the space age half a century ago. Because what the Russians have done is they found a rocket that worked half a century ago, and they've stuck with it. But also what you're looking at is not actually a rocket. It's basically the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, this missile was originally called Semyorka, Little Seven. And in 1957, in the summer, they flew a simulated nuclear strike against America. The guy who designed it, Sergei Korolev, was a brilliant missile designer, and he wanted to prove it worked. Now, Russia is big enough that you could launch it inside Russian territory and land it somewhere else where it's not going to affect, uh, get the West scared or anything like that. But they proved that this thing could, if they pointed it in the other direction, have dropped a nuclear bomb right into the American heartland. Now, the Americans picked up on radar that this thing was going up, and they started, ooh, the Russians are doing something. We can hear the tremble of a launch. We get the radar signals of something going up into the air. What's going on? In October 1957, the Americans found out because there was a little signal going bleep, bleep, bleep above their heads that all of the American secret agents could pick up and any schoolboy and schoolgirl with radio equipment in their schools could pick up because the bleep, bleep, bleep was designed to be on a frequency that anybody could pick up without any trouble. The space age began not with this great sort of humanitarian wonder of the cosmos, but with that classic weapons of mass destruction reaction of the Western world to something that they didn't understand and something they were, they were afraid of. Sputnik seemed to suggest to the Western world that if you could have something small and tiny, a little satellite whizzing over your head, round and round and round and round, what happened if you had something very big and very heavy and very nuclear flying a much shorter distance just from Russia to America? That's the idea that Sputnik put into the Americans' minds. They weren't initially excited about the prospects of space. They were terrified that the Russians had these ginormous rockets that could land bombs inside America. Now, do you think that America didn't have these rockets too? 
Well, yes and no. America had fantastically sophisticated rockets and fantastically sophisticated bombs. They were so small they could fit in underground bunkers or even inside the holds of submarines. But those rockets were too small to get into space. The Russian machinery was a lot cruder and a lot heavier and a lot clunkier. But because their bombs were so heavy, they needed these big rockets to lift them. So Sergei Korolev, the guy who'd invented this missile, had this great idea. He said, look, Kremlin, you've, you've, you know, Russian bosses, Red Army, you've instructed me to build a massive great rocket to launch your heavy, massive great nuclear bombs to America. But what happens if I put something only very lightweight, as light as a pea, on the tip of this rocket? Then we can use the power, the spare power, to go all the way into space. And the Red Army General said, oh, Karolyev, this is a very interesting idea, but you know, you, you, you do this, you take a rocket that is best protected for the motherland, you know, you, you waste time. We are trying to beat the Americans here to make sure we don't have a Western capitalist victory. You, know, you talk of space travel like some schoolboy. And Karolyev said to them, you're absolutely right, and I'm sorry for being disrespectful. Shall I report to the Kremlin that it is your opinion we should not try to beat the Americans into space with a satellite. <laughs> oh, Comrade Karolov, that's not what we said. No, uh, uh, maybe one missile, you can do one experiment. So Karolyev got to launch his little satellite, and it was called Sputnik. And all it was was just this tiny, tiny, tiny little ball. I'm sorry about the crudity of the uh, uh, thing here. It was just a tiny, tiny little silver ball. It was at the size of a beach ball. Because Karolyev had spent many, many months just getting the Red Army to give him a missile, one of the missiles that he'd built, because they spent so many months just arguing, can I take a missile out of army service and, and do this thing with a satellite? In the end, he only had about a month to build a satellite. Now, if you consider the, the months and years that go into building uh, modern satellites, that's astonishing. So all he could do was make a stainless steel ball and put a battery inside it and a radio transmitter. That's all that he had the capability to do. Anyway, he said to his engineers, look, you've got to polish this, this uh, Sputnik and make it look shiny because when your junior technicians come along or when any of the, uh, any of the political people come along, I want you to treat this object as a venerable object because it is going to be the first thing in space and I don't want any mistakes. This is not some missile that you can launch and it explodes and, oh, if it goes wrong, no harm done. This is the first thing in space. And then the engineers wheeled in an even more hollow version of this, just a crude model that they would fit inside the missile for checking that it, that, that it would release properly and for checking the nose cone and for checking the ground systems. It was basically a, a duplicate of the Sputnik in the same way as today we build duplicate components of spacecraft to test them on the ground and make sure they worked. So they wheeled in this uh, duplicate and Karolyev said, no, that's got to be polished too. And his technician said, no, we, we, polishing takes you know, days. You know, well, why? Well, why should we bother? It's only a duplicate. And he said, you fools! The real Sputnik's going to be up there. This one's going to be the one in the museum. <laughs> so this is the engineering duplicate that you actually see, see the photograph of. So Sputnik was sent into space because of this single-minded determination of Sergei Korolev. Now, Pravda, this great communist newspaper, reported the next morning half a paragraph 
Yes, there's been a significant uh, scientific uh, uh, success with the launch of uh, the first uh, payload uh, into orbit. It's been a significant engineering triumph. Thank you very much. And that's all the Kremlin uh, thought about it. But the world went absolutely crazy. Uh, the, the, the United States of America, the, 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 the politicians went crazy. People on the streets went crazy. The newspapers went crazy. And so the Kremlin said, hey, you know this thing that Korolev has done with one of our missiles is not such a bad idea. You know, it seems to be we're, we're getting some uh, good publicity out of this. And they turned to Korolev and said, look, can you do something else? You know, uh, give us another trick. You know, what can you do for us? Uh, and Korolev said, well, how, how, how long are you going to give me? Because I need to... No, we need it now. Uh, we have an you know, anniversary coming up of this and the other. So four weeks. <laughs> uh, so Korolev sort of said, oh, my God. And he said to his gang, look, well done, all of you, for putting Sputnik up. You've worked on this for uh, you know, a year solid. You've had sleepless nights. Uh, you're not going on holiday. You're not even going home. We are going to put an animal into space in four weeks' time. So he built another satellite, much larger than uh, the Sputnik, uh, and it contained Laika the dog. Now, of course, the implication was clear. Karolyev was steering the world to get used to the idea that living things could go into space. Laika, unfortunately, didn't make it back because they had no way of recovering her, but uh, the implication of what he was trying to do was clear. Meanwhile, the Americans, the Americans, let me show you what the Americans were up to. They've landed on the moon, they've uh, sent probes to Mars, they've had giant Saturn V rockets. This is the first American satellite called Explorer 1. You can't really see on this slide, it's a not very bright slide. Explorer 1, it was basically the size of, oh, I don't know, the size of a, a young cherry tree or something. Now, Korolev's job was to build missiles for the Russian motherland. America's great genius was called Werner von Braun, and he could have beaten Korolev hands down. There was just one slight problem with Werner von Braun. He had a little, bit of an accident in his past where he somehow accidentally accepted uh, the rank of lieutenant in the SS and somehow accidentally ended up working for the Nazi party building V2 rocket bombs and through no fault of his own, there was a vast underground factory at a place called Nordhausen where half-starved slave laborers were assembling his creation, the V2 rocket bomb, whose job was to, to land essentially on, on London and try and terrorize everyone. So when von Braun surrendered to American forces at the end of the Second World War and said he'd only been trying to dream of space and all his life he'd just wanted to build space rockets and he didn't mean any harm... The Americans said, this guy's a genius. He's also a Nazi. He's a genius. <laughs> yeah, but he's a Nazi. Okay, put him in the White Sands Desert of New Mexico and just pretend he doesn't exist. So he spent 10 years firing off V2s in uh, the New Mexican desert while the American government basically tried to pretend that he didn't exist. But then he made an amazing friend. Walt Disney. And Walt Disney rehabilitated von Braun as a fatherly inventor of the great future in space with a, we were pioneer we will have the, 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 hard, the colonization the great future for all humanity and uh, hello little children Von Braun did this great series of TV uh, exploits about the future, the wonderful future that America would have in space and Walt Disney reinvented him as the father figure of American rocketry uh, meanwhile the government did a, a, a pretty good job of saying well look you know he wasn't necessarily a Nazi, and if he was, he was only forced into it. 
It's quite true, von Braun was never a committed Nazi, and he was never anti-Semitic. It's just that he made that deal which probably all people who build rockets have had to make, and that is you take military money in order to see your dreams created. So anyway, after Sputnik, um, having failed with all other projects, America turned very quickly to von Braun and said, look, look, look never mind the Nazi stuff, uh, just get up there, uh, do something. Oh, but you've been developing missiles for the American army, haven't you? Um, can, can you make it a civilian project? And very quickly, like tomorrow. So what they did is they took an American missile that von Braun had developed, and they repainted it, and they gave it a different name, and they put Explorer 1 on top of it, and they saved America's um, uh, sense of self-esteem, if you like. But the fact was, the Russians had still done this achievement first. Now, Russians had sent uh, Laika the dog into space. I'd like to introduce you now to America's first great <coughs> space explorer, the first space explorer that wasn't a machine. And here he is. This is Ham. He's Ham the chimpanzee, or Mr. Ham, as I like to think of him, in, in light of his fantastic, exp uh, fantastic uh, achievements. Now, Ham was put inside a small conical capsule, only slightly taller than my head now. And Ham's job was very, very simple. He was supposed to go up into space and prove that he wasn't going to... His guts weren't going to explode. His brain wasn't going to go mad. He wasn't going to get sick and die in the weird, weightless realm where no human being had ever gone before. And the space doctors didn't know what, what on earth to expect up there. They wanted to make sure that something broadly equivalent to a human being could survive up there. Now, how were they going to tell what kind of time Ham was having up there? Because Ham wasn't going to be able to say, yeah, I'm doing fine, mission's proceeding really well. <laughs> Difficult. So they gave him a few switches to play with. And if he's feeling okay and he's doing the right things, he's doing his task, he, he presses switch on the right-hand side or something to prove he's still alive. And he gets a little banana pellet. If he's feeling uncomfortable in any way, or is feeling sick or something, then he's trained to press another, another switch, and again, he will get a banana pellet. Um, if he presses any of the wrong switches, then he'll get a very, very mild electric shock in the soles of his feet. <laughs> they give him a few simple tasks to do to make sure that his brain doesn't get addled up there, and that it's theoretically possible for a sentient creature to survive a space flight. Well, anyway, several things go slightly wrong. Uh, when Ham presses his, the correct switch that he's supposed to do for his tasks, instead of a banana pellet, he gets a little shock in the soul. <laughs> so then he thinks, in chimpanzee, I'm paraphrasing because I don't speak fluent chimp, but he must have been thinking along the lines of, shit, everything those bastards told me is wrong. It must have been the switch. So he presses that and gets an electric shock. And then, paraphrasing again, he's thinking, Duh, it must be my mistake. So he presses the, what, the good switch again, gets another shot. So he, by the time he splashes down, he's a very, very, very angry chimpanzee. <laughs> and I'm quoting now from the official records of the Mercury program from a NASA document that I have, dated 1961. Uh, it was apparent when Ham was shown uh, the spacecraft hardware after his flight that he had no further interest in taking part in the human space <laughs> <laughs> Now, Werner von Braun at this point uh, was asked, look, uh, Ham, he lived, 
you know, we've got to put a human being inside this thing because, you know, the Russians were first with Sputnik. We need to make sure we get our, uh, an American astronaut into space because otherwise all hell's going to break loose. And Von Brown said, uh, well, Ham the chimpanzee, oh, Ham the chimpanzee had a very difficult time. Uh, there were electrical problems with the capsule. Uh, it leaked water when it splashed down in the ocean. And uh, also it came down. Its guidance systems meant that it came down something like 100 miles away from the, from the recovery ships or something like that, a good long way away from where it was su- supposed to splash down. Bizarrely, the rocket fired for too long and took, it, uh, took Ham the chimpanzee too far. So Von Braun said, we can't take this risk with your first person, your first astronaut. We've got to bring him down accurately. We've got to check the wiring on, on this thing. It'll need two or three weeks. And uh, the other NASA people said, no, we've got to go now with a man. And Von Braun said, don't worry, two or three weeks won't, won't make any difference. We're still so close now. Don't worry, we'll still beat the Russians. For all his brilliance as a rocket engineer, and for all the fact that he got to the moon with, with his Saturn V lunar booster that he built, that turned out to be his least successful decision. Ham the chimpanzee here. If Ham the chimpanzee had come home smiling, if Ham said, you know what, you can stuff one of your astronauts in that thing any day, you're ready to rock and roll. If Ham had said that, instead of, (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't have landed a man on the moon by 1969. Just that three weeks, just the fact that the damn banana pellet dispenser wasn't working properly, was, if you like, that deciding moment in history. Ham the chimpanzee decided all of the rest of human of, of space history. Quite remarkable. It wasn't Kennedy's great speech, uh, which it was important that Kennedy made that speech, but, but it was Ham. Ham the chimpanzee is the pivotal moment. You are looking at the primary chimpanzee in all of space history. Because what happened in that three weeks is that this guy, instead of an American, went up to space instead. Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin. Now, there were a number of problems with Gagarin from the American (coughs) point of view. He was young. He was handsome. He was a superb diplomat. And he did a world tour which made him as famous as Elvis uh, and defined superstardom even before the Beatles or any of the modern superstars got into uh, the swing of it. This guy was fabulous. And the fact that a human being had gone up into space, the fact that he was adorable, the fact that it was the second time that Soviet Russia had pulled off this incredible stunt of reaching into the future and reaching into space, made people around the world begin to think, okay, you know, the the Soviet system has killed lots of people. It's, it's, It's not ideal. It's been a disaster. And yet maybe... Maybe we're wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with lazy, fat American capitalism. Maybe the Western world has grown decadent. Maybe we are actually in the wrong. (coughs) And as for the poor old Soviets who'd gone through the gulags and the mass exterminations, on this day when Gagarin went up and came home safely and was paraded as a hero, they began to think, maybe our fathers and our forefathers and and, and, and our brothers and sisters and wives uh, have not died in vain. Maybe the, the fact that we're poor now Uh, Maybe this is the turning point, and in 10, 20 years now, we all live like kings, because maybe socialism can work. If there had been any more fantastic successes like this in the space age for the Soviets, then the story of the Cold War competition on the ground, politically, might have been very different. Now, the other thing that had happened in the meantime is that... um, Sorry, not in the meantime. Gagarin went up in 1961... 
John F. Kennedy had, had just come to the White House at this point. Now, he was confronted with, he was 44 years old, he was one of the youngest presidents they'd had. He'd just made a rather unsuccessful attempt to, to invade Cuba. Uh, the CIA had sent a small invasion force of Cuban exiles in and a few other people of their own. Uh, it was a total, utter disaster. It was a secret operation that went absolutely wrong. They also didn't rescue their people, so it was, it was a disaster. John F. Kennedy had only just come into office in the White House. And within a matter of days after this disaster in Cuba, which made him appear weak and foolish and not in control even of his own you know, secret intelligence services, not in control of, not knowledgeable of what was going on in his own government, it was a disaster. And then on top of that, Yuri Gagarin was in orbit making the communists again look really, really good and really efficient. So John F. Kennedy was panicking. And he said, oh, what, what, what am I going to do to make myself look good? This is essentially what he was asking. How, how am I going to rescue my reputation and America's reputation? Now, his vice president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, said, OK, I need to convene a committee and I'll get back to you. So Lyndon Johnson got experts in the room, the head of NASA, Werner von Braun, people from industry. And, the, and this is what he said. He said, gentlemen, and it was all gentlemen in those days, gentlemen, we've got a terribly difficult decision to make. Which one of you son of a bitches think that landing on the moon is not the right thing to do right now? And he had a very, very powerful personality, and he knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, and everybody said, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, so, Von, uh, so Lyndon Johnson went back to the President Kennedy and said, Mr. President, uh, I've convened with all the experts, and they're unanimous that the, the only logical thing to do is to do something that uh, the Russians can't beat us at. If we do something next week, the Russians will beat us. If we do something next year, the Russians will beat us. We set a long-term target we know the Russians can't do. We're going to land a man on the moon. So Kennedy said, all right, well, somebody better tell me how much this is going to cost. Now, a very, very wily North Carolina man called Jim Webb had been given the job of running NASA because 18, 19, 20 other senior figures in American political and scientific life didn't want the job because they'd seen Ham the Chimpanzee and they'd seen the puny little uh, uh, satellites go up and they thought NASA was a laughing stock. They thought the whole damn thing would be just shut down in two or three years. Jim Webb thought differently. Uh, and now that he was in charge, and now that Gagarin had given him this, well, by default, this great job to do of landing on the moon, he uh, asked that his NASA people, look, we've got, you, you're, all, you're all space cadets here, you all came to work for this Mickey Mouse agency because you want to see it grow and you want the chance to do your space cadet dreams. Well, now you've got it. We're going to land on the moon. But be honest with me, because I have to tell the president, and we will only have this one chance. You know what American politics is like. We'll have one chance to get the politicians behind us and never again. So tell me, in all seriousness, how much is this going to cost? And his experts at NASA said, well, uh, $7 billion? And Webb said, come on, be serious. You're assuming that we have a smooth ride and everything works fine first time. Give me a proper figure. And I mean it this time. No lies, no fudging. <coughs> so they come away and they say, uh, okay, that's a, we can really do this for $14 billion. Thank you. So Webb trudges up to the White House. He says to Kennedy, Mr. President, I have a figure for you. I can promise you a landing on the moon before this decade is out for $20 billion. <laughs> <laughs> and Kennedy goes, but that's a fantastic sum of money. And Webb says, I know, sir, but you, know, you have to make the commitment now, and you're going to have to maintain that commitment over 10 years to get this done. But if you do that, and if you let me run NASA my way, I'll make sure that this happens. 
If anything happens at NASA that is wrong, if anything that happens at NASA that is uh, embarrassing to you, I'll take the rap and I will resign on the condition that you let me do things my way. So they shake hands on that deal and Jim Webb turns NASA into this great colossus throughout the 1960s. Everybody is much bolstered in these early days by the launch of Alan Shepard into space. And this is America's first astronaut. Now, um, if you were my audience and, uh, that I've had sometimes, I'll tell you what, let's try it. Those of you who are not completely cramped by your tables, I'd like you to draw your knees up as close as you can to your chest. Those of you who can manage it. Okay? <laughs> That's good. Now, I just have one more favor to ask. Can you stay like that for anywhere between, say, three and five hours <laughs> without moving? Okay? Thank you very much, because weightlessness or, or, or not. You know, you're, most of the time it's spent sitting around in the capsule while the technicians get you ready for launch. But that's all the space you have. The, the hatchway is, is, is close over your head. Your knees are drawn up because you're in this couch that's supposed to protect you against the G-forces when you re-enter. It's very, very, very cramped in there. Um, but anyway, that's Alan Shepard. Now the other thing that goes on is that um, the technicians come up to you and let me show you, this is one of my favorite images from all the images that I researched for a recent book that I've done. The technicians, the pad technicians, they know you. They will know the astronauts as friends. You will have trained with them for many, many weeks. And what they do is they stuff you into this capsule very tenderly. See how, how the, 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 the tender hand there? Because they love this guy. The, the technicians love the astronaut. And then what they say to you is, is, they, is they say, look, okay, Mr. Astronaut Hero, we're going to put this hatch over you. We're going to be just about a couple of miles away <laughs> in an underground bunker. Good luck. <laughs> because these astronauts are sitting on top of missiles, which are the most potent and violently dangerous machines uh, that have ever been created. They're also sitting on missiles that are so new. They've only flown a handful of times before they put humans on top of them. So if that missile had exploded, then obviously the astronaut would have died and the launch pad would have gone, and, and it's just staggering. And there's something about this, this image here that, that speaks to me of the almost an ancient mythical sacrifice. This guy is potentially being sacrificed. There is certainly a, 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 a one in three chance of his not coming back in those very, very early days, because they're taking extreme risks against the day that... Uh, communist Russia will also take extreme risks, risks, win the gamble, and win the political battle down on the ground. So, um, you know, we, we forget really how brave these, these guys really were, and how absolutely unroutine all of the missions were uh, in, the, in the space age, including the missions to the moon. There never was anything routine about risking your life in machines which had only been flown once or twice before when you stepped inside them. So, let's see where we are. Uh, now, this is a picture of another two-man, uh, a, a two-man version of that Mercury capsule. Now, they were putting two men in because uh, the idea now was for the Americans to send guys up, not just for a day or two at a time, but for maybe five or even ten days. So now, imagine when you had your knees tucked up, that you have to maintain that position for perhaps a week or more at a stretch. And then what happens is they come along these launch pad technicians and they slam the door on you 
and then again they're just sort of waving you goodbye through these tiny little windows. Do you know, these pictures aren't coming up terribly well, so do you mind if I dispense with the pictures and just talk? Is that, is that, is that going to be um, annoying to you? Or should we carry on with the pictures? Okay. So um, the Germany spaceships went up and they had two people inside. Uh, I'll, I'll do some pictures. Um, the trick now was to do spacewalks. Now, we're so used to spacewalks now, aren't we? Um, this is the first ever picture of a spacewalk. <coughs> this, again, is those pesky Russians. Korolev pulling off stunts. Uh, and Korolev pulling off stunts year after year after year with the same spaceship that he launched Yuri Gagarin in. Uh, the Western newspapers said, oh my god, the Russians had sent up a two-man spaceship. And then a while later, it's, oh my god, the Russians had sent up a three-man spaceship. But all that uh, uh, Korolev was doing in, 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 desperate, uh, in a desperate bid to please his political masters was strip out the capsules and more and more equipment. And in the end, stripping out even their spacesuits in order to give the illusion and be able to report in the press that they said one man up and then two men up and then three men up. But uh, he was gambling for time. He was gambling that as long as he kept coming up with these illusory successes, he could actually carry on building uh, the things that would come up with real successes. And it was uh, him who genuinely created the first spacewalk. This is Alexei Leonov, who's still alive today, um, doing a spacewalk. Now, he had this umbilical, you can see this umbilical curving around his head, which makes him look rather infantile and dependent, almost like a sort of unborn baby in a strange way. I love this image because it doesn't give too much away. The thing with the NASA images that you get back is they're all crystal clear and all reproduced in newspapers and magazines almost the instant the mission is over. They're so keen to tell everybody what they're doing. The Russians are a bit like uh, the perfect mistress. They always keep quite a lot, as much hidden as they show. Uh, and they certainly kept the details of their technology hidden because they didn't really want to reveal uh, in some ways how crude it was and in other ways how not crude it was. <coughs> So there weren't any of the glamorous pictures of Leonov floating in orbit, just these rather um, hazy ones. What happened to Leonov is that he was in this spacesuit which kept all the air inside, and he was able to float around, but the trouble was, in the vacuum, his spacesuit blew up like a Michelin man. So he couldn't get back inside the, the little hatch to get back inside <laughs> the spacesuit. He really, really was in danger of being stranded. He was also exhausted, because uh, n neither side, neither America nor Russia, had figured out a way of Okay, you're drifting around in space. Like, you know, well, then what? And what do you, well, how do you? How do you actually go anywhere? You can't. You're just sort of stuck. And it's very, very tiring. So uh, Leonov had to do something insane. He had to let some of the air out of his spacesuit in order to dwindle it, dwindle its size, so he could get back inside his ship. Uh, the American uh, astronaut uh, who came again after the Russians had succeeded in, in this. Obviously, much clearer pictures they came up with. And this is a lovely picture that's just coming up here. That's Ed White. Now, Ed White's problem was that his lovely Gemini spaceship, remember we were looking at it earlier, it's a, it's a, it's a cone, and it's sort of corrugated on the sides, but basically it's a smooth cone. So when he came up against the sides of this smooth cone, and he was wanting to get back inside, he was sort of scrabbling against it, it wasn't going anywhere, there was nothing to grip onto. He very, very nearly exhausted himself simply getting from A to B and clambering back inside the spaceship. It took several more missions for all the buffins at NASA to grasp how good it would be to put some handrails on the side <laughs> of the <cover. laughs> Now, 
you've seen how cramped those little capsules are, how basically uh, the, the, the experience of space for everyone is, is just <laughs> glimpsing through a tiny window with your knees practically pressed into your, into your, uh, into your neck. But from the general public's point of view, they just lapped it up. Now, Billy Bragg, how many of you have heard of Billy Bragg? Presumably lots of you have all heard of Billy Bragg. Well, now, he said something recently. He said, look, I loved it when I was growing up as a kid in the 1960s because they said, soon, man will be on the moon. I didn't think they meant just half a dozen of them. <laughs> everybody thought, and I mean everybody, from boffins to general public to newspaper editors alike, that uh, these early experiments with capsules were the herald of some great new expansion into space uh, yet to come. So Thunderbirds was kind of the start of it. And then a filmmaker called Stanley Kubrick telephoned Sylvie Anderson, who was the Thunderbirds producer, uh, and said, uh, oh, all right, Sylvie, uh, listen, I was just wondering uh, if you'd like to have lunch, maybe. And Sylvie said, Stanley, are you just interested in uh, poaching all of my special effects technicians and my model makers? And Stanley said, you know what? Uh, maybe there's no point in having lunch. Because <laughs> that's what he wanted to do. Because he had in mind uh, what is still remains, after 40 years, one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, look at this picture. It shows several astronauts, rather than just two, wandering the lunar surface. It shows multiple ships jumping up and down. And in the background, there's a city on the moon. This is uh, mid-1960s they were making this movie. So, again, uh, this is a very, very serious suggestion that by six years ago in the past, we would have built a city on the moon. The problem with this great vision I'll come to later. I'm just going to fiddle more with my NASA-style old-fashioned technology here. But for the meantime... Everyone was sold on the dream. And here you can just about see, this is an aerial view of NASA's mission control complex at Houston. Now, I'm often told that space flight, and human space flight in particular, is a waste of money. Um, and my reply is, well, among many replies is, does that person think that NASA takes dollar bills and shoves them into the back of the rocket and sets fire to them and then the money's gone? No. What happens is that the money is circulated down on the ground. Uh, any of you familiar with Roosevelt and the New Deal, where if you have any aspect of your society or, or your economy that's moribund, it may be justified for the government to pour money into developing, into kick-starting certain developmental processes. Um, the shock of Sputnik had really encouraged America, uh, as one great Chicago businessman said when he failed to get a, a, a NASA contract. He said, you know, the problem with Chicago is we got rich in making toilet seats. And he went away and he founded science laboratories and things like that because the American consumer economy was getting by very nicely in the 1950s and, and early 1960s on technology that they already knew how to do, motor cars and washing machines and uh, cake mixes. <coughs> there, there was no great incentive for, incentive for them to, to innovate in, in, in huge and complicated new areas because they were already a successful consumer economy. What Sputnik did was to suggest that that situation might not last forever. And so NASA was the last throw of the Rooseveltian New Deal dice, and indeed James Webb was a protege of, of Roosevelt. So the money wasn't wasted. It went into creating something like a quarter of a million jobs. It went over the decade into spurring 100,000 new science and engineering graduates uh, to get them through the educational system. Uh, it went into putting new laboratories on, on, on campuses all across America. 
every time you see a spaceship, especially in the early 1960s, it's only a small facet of the, in a way, far more important economic activity that was going on down on the ground. Whether NASA should still be spending that kind of money is a moot point, but back in the 1960s, certainly it wasn't a waste of money. It was a very necessary last push into the technological age for America. Now, I'm always asked, oh, what spin-offs did uh, the space age produce? Teflon, wasn't it? Well, Teflon was called Easy Fry, and it was already available by the early 1950s, and the rocket engineers lined the inside of their fuel pipes with Teflon to make a smoother uh, fuel uh, flow through these very powerful rocket engines. So no, Teflon didn't come out. Shall I tell you something startling? As far as I can see, no technology of consequence emerged from the space age that wouldn't have emerged anyway. But I'll tell you this, most of the technologies that you use in your everyday life would be 15 years further in the future unless the space age had caused them to be uh, produced more swiftly. Microchips would have come anyway, but there was an urgent need back in the 60s for small circuits that could fit inside rockets and be sturdy and so on. So there was a little investment and government investment in getting these new technologies going. There are a lot of medical scanners and, and, and uh, bi uh, you know, biosensor devices, which again were needed uh, to be made compact so that you could monitor the astronauts and make sure they were healthy. Again, that fed into uh, a lot of standard medical technologies that we have today. Um, there was computer software. How do you build software which, you know, if you have a, 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 a computer crash in a spacecraft, this is bad news. So how do you build software which is uh, rugged, which is dependable? How do you build routines that you can check the software, that you can run simulations of it and, and debug it? All of these things, just these, these basic disciplines, came because of the urgent need not to have your software go wrong on a space mission. So as I say, uh, don't be fooled into thinking that the space age invented anything, but at the same time, without it, any of the toys that you use today, any of the uh, technology that you use in your business lives, you'd still be waiting for them. You'd be looking at your watch and saying, oh, if only I had a computer that could fit in a suitcase. So, I'm going to show you what I think is uh, the saddest loss. Here is, is the great Saturn V moon rocket. I think this is an absolutely fabulous picture. It's the, the archetype. The interesting thing is um, the Russians have used rockets that are half a century old at, uh, because when they've built something, they say, okay, we'll add to it incrementally over time. We'll make it better and better and better, but let's not throw away the stuff that works. The Americans built, I think, and does anybody know? I think they built a total of 20 of these rockets and flew about 17 of them. I, I'm not sure of my exact figures, but it was along the, that, those lines. And then... Just when they proved that this rocket was reliable, just when they proved that it could uh, launch missions to the moon, that it could also launch very heavy things into Earth orbit, just at that point, they cancelled it. That's not the, uh, the only story of technological foolishness. Great Britain created uh, a rocket called the Black Arrow in the 1960s, and in 1971, just as they'd launched it from Woomera Rocket Base in Australia and launched the first ever British satellite into orbit, and laid the foundations for what might have become a great commercial satellite launch market, they cancelled it. They gave the technology, it was absorbed into what's now the European Space Agency. So the thing about investing in technology or in scientific research of any kind is that you always have to take the long, long view and that if anything works, you shouldn't cancel it. This rocket here could have launched today's International Space Station in three or four lifts. 
but it's actually taken about 30 or 40 lifts of the American of the new space shuttle to achieve the equivalent result. Also, this rocket launched uh, at the end of the Moon Age a thing called Skylab, which was so roomy you could literally run around inside it. What, what the astronauts would do is they'd run around inside the big sort of cylinders until they created their own funny sort of artificial gravity effect. It was huge. Uh, the space stations today, they boast that it's got the internal space of uh, two or three jumbo jets. But the trouble is, that internal space never amounts to more than the corridor that leads to the lavatories downstairs, because you can't launch any modules that are wider than 15 feet wide. So, anyway, just a sad story I'm getting into there, that you will never see the like of this wonderful machine again, the Saturn V, which was a product from Ham the Chimpanzee in 1961 getting shocks in his feet to being ready but the 365-foot-tall lunar rocket took seven years. Can you imagine any government program or any major technology program coming up with results that fast these days? Um, it's quite extraordinary. We get cynical about the space age, but it has a lot of lessons to teach us about not only how to manage complicated projects, but how to commit to them. Now, the other... Oh, yeah, I'll just show you... An, um, see if this picture's going to come up here. Yeah. There we go. Now, the Saturn, well, you can't really see. Okay, I'm going to skip the pictures because it, uh, it's, no, uh, it's a lovely, sweet little projector, but it's, it's, it's not really um, doing the pictures that we need. Um, I'm just going to talk from, from now on. I want to talk a little bit about the, um, to go back a little to something that does concern me, and that is, if you like, the WMD aspect of space history. We talked earlier on about how Korolev's R-7 rocket, the rocket that launched Sputnik, terrified America into thinking that uh, if they could launch a lightweight Sputnik all the way around the world, they could launch a heavy nuclear bomb a shorter distance into the American heartland. And President Kennedy and <coughs> his Republican rival, a certain wonderful chap called Richard Milhouse Nixon, went head-to-head -head on this issue, and there was a great debate about something called the missile gap. Now, the actual truth is, which the CIA knew perfectly well, and which Russia and Kennedy knew perfectly well, both sides knew it perfectly well, the R-7 rocket was fueled with kerosene and liquid oxygen. And that's what gave it its power to launch this, this very, you know, these potentially very heavy nuclear bombs. The trouble with liquid oxygen is you can't just sort of press the button and make the thing go. You need to spend three or four hours fueling the rocket and getting the liquid oxygen ready. So the idea of having a, a nuclear missile force aimed at America based on this kind of technology was absolutely false. Uh, you simply cannot react in time. If America does decide to attack you, or if there's any kind of strategic problem, you don't have a credible force. It takes you four hours just to get the thing fueled. The other thing is that there were never more than two or three of them on standby at any one time, because you need a full launch pad and a full ground crew to get them going. The honest truth is that although um, Russia looked sophisticated getting Sputnik into orbit, America was technologically the more sophisticated because they had small rockets with, say, solid fuels or, or fuels that didn't need liquid oxygen. They had small rockets and small nuclear bombs. So the missile gap that the Americans uh, spoke of was a lie. The Americans always had far more missiles, far more compact and sophisticated than, than the Russians. But the Americans still, did still have one significant problem. They didn't have enough missiles that could go, that they could launch them from submarines if they were near Russian territory. But to get a missile from American territory into Russian territory, that would take large missiles. And the Americans had almost as equivalently few of those 
as Russia did. So what the Americans did is they put missiles, short-range, low-power little missiles, onto the Turkish border because then it was just a short hop into Russia. Well, the Russians thought this was a bit unfair. So they said, well, look, we need also our, our short, little-range missiles to be somewhere near America too because otherwise it's not fair. We'll put them in Cuba, which is friendly communist soil. So in 1962, there was this great standoff, uh, which, was, which, which was based partly on the usual weapons of mass destruction lies. Neither side was being remotely honest about their, the true inadequacies of their long-range strike force. And so they were having to fight these sort of short-range standoffs. Now, um, we talk today about uh, the war against terror. We, we cry proper tears of deep terror and deep remorse when 3,000 people at a time are killed in that awful 9-11 uh, atrocity. That's what it was. Let's not mess around. But it is not by any means the worst crisis that so-called Western civilization has ever faced. In October 1962, Secretary for Defense Robert McNamara took his family out to look at the, the sky setting and the, and the twilight and listen to the birds in the trees. Uh, it was a particular day, I think it was, Saturday, it was a Saturday. And as he went back inside the house, he wondered whether he would ever see that site again. There was a real, real danger of total thermonuclear standoff, thermonuclear war, exchanged with these short-range missiles, that could have, and also with conventional bomber fleets, aeroplane bomber fleets, that could have wiped out the world. Kennedy and Khrushchev, thank God, did not listen to the advice of their generals. Anyone seen Dr. Strangelove? Remember the general who was thumping around saying, Mr. President, Mr. President, attack him now. If we attack him now, it'll be, they'll be, all be gone. America, 25, 30 million dead tots. Yeah, depending on the breaks. And that's what it was. You had these <coughs> mad generals on both sides saying, come on, attack now, attack now. We can get this over with. A great victory for capitalism or a great victory for communism. All in one go. And thank God at that time we had two leaders who were very big on talking the talk but had the sense not to walk the walk. And they pulled back. America somehow was allowed to announce that it had got Russia to back down. But in secret, behind the newspaper headlines, America was also pulling its missiles back from the Turkish border. And the world was saved. So um, I just wanted to put that today's sense of threat and today's sense of worry into, into a context. Those missiles haven't gone away. Um, Nation-state politics hasn't gone away. Vladimir Putin has just poured a great deal more money into his armed defense forces. Uh, the missiles, although not technically speaking aimed at America, can be reprogrammed at any moment. None of this stuff has gone away. Iraqi terror, uh, not Iraqi terrorists, there, are, there have been no Iraqi terrorists until foreign insurgents went in there. Um, uh, Islamic extremists may kill quite a lot of us. We are already killing a lot of innocent uh, Islamic citizens. But the point is, this is small fry in comparison to what might happen. The nuclear age hasn't gone away, the weapons haven't gone away. It won't be North Korea, uh, it won't be Iraq, it'll be um, one of some silly situation in, in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia that kicks off a larger dispute once again between America, which is paranoid and constantly on war alert, and a resurgent and strategically powerful uh, new Russia. So, just some thoughts to send you uh, home to your beds, um, thinking peacefully. But the other thing that, uh, do you mind if I fiddle with this? The other thing that Khrushchev and Kennedy uh, realized is, my God, we can't do this shit. 
what we have to do is if we want to strut our stuff and we want to win friends and influence people, let's do it in a way that is not going to uh, wipe out or not going to risk wiping us out for real. Let's have a pretend game. So both of them signed up enthusiastically for uh, the, lunar, the, the lunar competition. Uh, and it was, uh, it was such a game, uh, and the proof of that game is that there was a United Nations conference shortly before Kennedy was assassinated where Kennedy was sending intermediaries out to Khrushchev's people looking to see whether or not there might be some way that they could collaborate in space in order to save themselves both the ludicrous expense. It's always been a, a kind of game of showmanship. But what a game it was. That's it for now. Thank you very much. And I look forward to having your questions later. I hope I've entertained you at least. Yeah.